Hello, my global friends. It's Isabella Lombacure, the World Messenger. I'm welcoming you today on the Legacy Leaders Podcast Show. I have a very special guest today, very dear to my heart, a serial entrepreneur and legend in his own right, phenomenal mentor, advisor, friend, and somebody who has an exceptional life and business story that I cannot wait to divulge more details. Mr. Rex Weishart, please welcome Rex. Well, Rex, welcome. Thanks, Isabella, and I think I'm only a legend in my own mind, but that's a different question. <laughs> Mr. Humble as well. Uh, it's great to have you. I, I really appreciate your time and opportunity to uh, share uh, to our global audience uh, opportunity to really learn from someone like yourself who has been through so many different things on personal, professional uh, level and able to uh, not only survive a handful of obstacles, but also to successfully thrive. And legend has it that you're also the one who just barely had um, opportunity to work for a few companies in your lifetime, in your career span, and very early understood the power of entrepreneurship and uh, never looked back. Do you mind sharing oh, come a little on. bit about that? I had a job that? for nine months once. Wow, only nine months, and you depended on that paycheck from that employer, and since then worked for yourself. Wow. Do you mind sharing for people that are being codependent on the paycheck in a way all of us are, either serial entrepreneurs or employees, but do you mind sharing what happened, what was the pivotal moment, and how do you uh, now... Um, and full ride as a serial entrepreneur have accomplished uh, what you are, are able to accomplish, being bulletproof through so many recessions and many, many challenges. Certainly haven't been bulletproof, but I've lived through all of them. Um, <laughs> Business model. I don't, even, I, I don't even know where to start. Early in my life, I had a few entrepreneurial things which went relatively well. Uh, which made me thought that think that nobody was smarter than me, so why would I work for them? Um, and pretty much my early successes, uh, starting when I was eight, when I had my first business, um, and going on from there, I just always figured I like to be the guy that's running my life, and so I just always have. That is a great a way to start thinking because. Uh, different freedom, right? When you run your own life, the schedule, flexibility as well, people you want to work with and also taking on different adventures. Uh, do you mind sharing uh, what happened when you were actually eight years old? Seems like you had already established your first business. What was that? So I'm old, right? And in those <laughs> days, and my my goal in life was to be the next Arnold Palmer. I never made it, but it was a pretty good goal. And in those days, there weren't driving ranges. So if you wanted to get good at golf, you hit your own practice balls, you picked them up, and you hit them again. And you did it again and again and again. And I was hitting a 1,000 balls a day, every day, that there wasn't snow on the ground. And... I had this dog that I'd gotten when I was when she was an hour old. Her mom died having her. Wow. And I started feeding her with an eyedropper and then a doll's bottle and then a baby bottle before she ever ate. And there was nothing I couldn't teach her. Wow. And I got her when I was five. When I was eight, I decided that I could teach her to shag golf balls. So I would take her out, let's say, 180 yards, and I would be hitting a five iron. And I'd hit the ball and she'd wait, she'd wait for it to land and she'd go pick it up and put it in a pile. And so I'd, I'd hit my thousand balls every day. It would take five or six hours. And this is small town Indiana where everybody knows everybody, everybody trusts everybody. It's just Midwest personified. And so I'd go, I was on my way out to go play golf and I'd rent her to the next guy who would rent her to the next guy who would rent her to the next guy, to the next guy, to the next guy. And now I'm off the golf course and we go home and have dinner. In those days, uh, golf balls were made out of something called bolada. And all you had to do was make one swing and ruin a golf ball. And I was a poor kid. 
and I made lots of bad swings and I ruined a lots of dollar and a quarter golf ball. And my goal from, her name was Bobo. My goal from Bobo in my first business was to keep me in round golf balls. And she not only did that, she made more money than that. So, hey, life is good. I get to hit all the golf balls I want and I'm making money at it. Well, that is fantastic. Beautiful story. Earlier on, figuring out to be resourceful and find a solution to the problems and obstacles. And since like Bobo and you uh, started your career path very, very early and showing how serious you are to succeed as an entrepreneur, thinking outside of the box and finding some very creative solutions. And well, that- she did all the work. I just hit golf balls. <laughs> and earn some money, that, that is great. And then after that, obviously, uh, that kind of mindset helps you um, to carve your future. Um, do you mind sharing a little bit about choices you made, specifically around university and college era when you were deciding what to study and also saw some great opportunities to overcome other issues and obstacles and then your career path, please. I was the worst college student ever. Um, I was on the eight-year plan to to graduate from college. And the, the reason that I'm a business guy is really very simple. When I was in high school, my father made me take Latin. And I took Latin from this angry spinster who scared me away from language forever. I hadn't even thought about what I was going to study when I went to college. I only knew a couple of things. Um, One, I wanted to be good at it. And two, I didn't want to be known as a jock. I was on an athletic scholarship, but I didn't want to be known as a jock. And I'd never bothered to look at the the catalog and to see what I was going to study until the morning of the afternoon when I had to go sign up. And my rule was no languages. And at that time, there was only two schools that there were no languages. Phys ed, I didn't want to be known as a jock. In business. Okay, I'll go to business school. That's it. <laughs> what a way to make a decision. Okay, business it is. And then through that process, chosen your degree, you also saw some amazing opportunities there on the campus too. Tell us some mischievous things, but also a continuation of your blossoming entrepreneurship career. I assume you're talking about a beer or two, right? Maybe. <laughs> Enlighten our audience, because again, even though you are not sure what you want to be, uh, but you are putting yourself out there, you showed up, right? And then you decided and then slowly uh, expanded and completed some really amazing academic achievements, which I also like our audience to hear about, uh, as well some creative financially highly rewarded uh, outcomes. So please take away. So my year, my junior year in college was the year in college that set up my life for two reasons. One, academics. Um, I was going to school at Indiana University and there were 36,000 undergraduates on campus. And I was chosen to be one of eight people, happened to be all men. Um, eight people to study entrepreneurship in a group setting. All we studied was entrepreneurship for the year. And we were the first guys that ever studied entrepreneurship at Indiana University. And all of us went on to become entrepreneurs. But I think a lot of it happened because we got in this honors program. Also that year, I got this crazy idea. Now I'm 19 years old and drinking age in Indiana is 21. And you probably aren't old enough to remember, but I certainly do. Coke machines used to serve bottles, not cans. So I bought and repaired 19 old Coke machines and placed them in sorority and fraternity houses around campus. And even though I was 19 and drinking age was 21, I went to the local beer wholesaler every Wednesday and bought a whole truck full of beer. And then I would deliver the beer to the various fraternity and sorority houses. And I had somebody who worked for me in every house and their pay was all the beer they could drink. And yeah, they could drink a lot of beer, but it didn't do much to margin. 
and I made a whole bunch of money. And I thought, okay, I can do this again. Now, <laughs> I could have easily gotten my rear thrown in jail or thrown out of school or lots of stuff. But I wasn't smart enough to think about that. And then when I dropped out of school the next year, I was stupid enough to give it away instead of selling it. Ah! Oh, well. So you learn some lessons and mistakes, but also seems like you've been very fearless, right? Because what we don't know, we don't know. And then we just go at it till we fear, till we really get a feel for it and then see what we maybe need to correct. Um, but since like uh, legend has it, that's how Indiana University got this party, party a college status. And um, Oh, it was there long before me and long after. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm teasing, but I love that resourcefulness and opportunity to collaborate and think outside of the box with others. And then after Indiana University, uh, I, of course, you finished uh, law school. You have a law degree, and you've not only accomplished well, that was a, that was a few years later, but yeah. And then also you have a business degree. I call it I call it secret. And that was a few years later too. I've called you a secret trifecta, uh, somebody who already had uh, pioneering entrepreneurship and, and already learned what it takes to be one and then different mindset, and then also has a very savvy uh, business degree and the law, so understands all of that. And now with those three things uh, armed with, what happened with your first, that seven or nine months venture that you work for someone and how that changed forever, the course that we're now uh, talking more about, which is that entrepreneurship mindset? There were some guys, a bunch of lawyers from Des Moines, Iowa, and I was living in the Phoenix area that had invested in a startup uh, that they had been made, been made some big promises and at the time that they hired me, I'm probably the 150th person they talked to. And I was the first one that was stupid enough to say, okay. And they were manufacturing very sophisticated amplifiers for bands. Think Jimi Hendrix, that sort of sophisticated sound. And lighting systems for bars and restaurants. And the, the entrepreneur who had talked them into investing money, and by the way, they had come up with more than three and a half times the original money that they had promised to invest by the time I got involved, um, had sold them on the fact that, that Cadillacs in the music business was the thing. And the day that I said yes and walked through the door, um, I'd never been a boss before. There was 29 employees, there was 10,000 square feet of space. Oh, the bad news was there was almost $300,000 in in past in payables past due judgments and another two hundred and forty thousand that was about to go there but there's a three and a half million dollar sales backlog and i thought with that kind of backlog i hey i'll figure something out so i took the gig walked around the first week really not talking to talking much just looking around and on friday i fired 20 of the 29 employees still the hardest business day I've ever had because I had never fired one person, let alone 20 at one time, most of which were factory workers and most of which needed their paycheck to feed their kids. But I thought it needed to happen and I did it. And I'm not saying I'm old or anything, but on Monday morning, I walk in the, in the door about 7 a.m. and there's a telegram waiting for me. Wow, that is a very different era. Telegrams were still delivered. We were we were talking about probably late sixties, maybe early seventies. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's early seventies. Okay, um, I was closing up. And, and and the telegram said, "Hi, this is your customer that's got the entire backlog, and we cancel it all. Bye." And oh, by the way, um, I had begged the owners to let me throw the company into Chapter 11 before I took over, and they said no. They had given me some a little money, but not much, a few tens of thousands of dollars to pull this thing out. I got an airplane and flew to Cincinnati to talk to the customer. It was clear to me that they had every right in the world to throw this, to, to cancel uh, the backlog. And I flew back to Denver through the company in Chapter 11 and then called the owners and told them I'd done it, which was a pretty interesting conversation. 
and very gutsy, gutsy action to do what you feel and stick to it and take a risks, isn't it? What am I going to do? Fire me? Okay. I'm, you know, running a company that's got no future. I can live being fired. So I, I laid off the six other people who still work there and left three guys in the, in the research and development area. And I got $37,000 turned into fives, tens, twenties, and a few fifties, put it in a paper bag. I went to those guys and I said, okay, guys, here's the deal. I think that a Cadillac amplifier is the market is over. I think what we need is a Chevrolet. I think I'm seeing the carpenters coming. And I want, I want you to re redesign our entire product. And oh, by the way, it's really important that you give me some intellectual property that makes this, makes this product different than anything else on the market. And this was January. And I said, and oh, by the way, I need it done and UL approved because we're gonna, we're gonna introduce this thing at the June trade show. And in those days um, in the music business, you had reps, but the reps pretty much bought coffee and beer in music stores and all the sales for the for the year went went down at three trade shows this one was at the old disneyland convention center it's not even there anymore and that was the plan and i said on the money side i said if you spend more than this there isn't any more and if you don't spend this much don't tell me but keep it so i was trying to incentivize these guys and Walked away and left him alone. And by the way, I don't know a one from a zero. I am totally not a technical person. I'm not bad at operations, but things like technology just blow me away. And I don't get it. I'm a pretty good user, but I don't, I, you know, I don't know how to write code. I don't know how to do anything like that. So I would check in with these guys every few weeks. And other than that, I left them alone. And I kept saying, UL approved, need some intellectual property, need a competitive advantage. And the the shows were expensive, and I didn't send the money in, and I didn't send the money in, and I didn't send the money in because I'm afraid we weren't going to have anything. And I finally sent it in. We get accepted. By the time we go to the show, oh, by the way, my guys got it UL approved, and they they you know they told me what they had done uh, that was that was cool and and at least highly evolutionary in the music business. We'd made eight mo eight models, eight prototypes. We get to the show and there's a room maybe 50 feet square off of the off of the main show floor. Guess where our booth was? Somewhere in the corner. In the room where nobody was going to find me. Out of my own pocket, I went out and tried to bribe people into switching space with me. And nobody that they knew exactly what kind of jail I was in, and there was nobody that was going to do it. Nobody wanted to bail you out, huh? How did you solve nobody that wanted problem? To bail me out. Just luck. This is 1973, when people still drank a lot. Five minutes before the show opens, they roll a portable bar into my little room, and it's the only bar in the place. Fantastic. What what we what my guys had designed was the first amplifier in history that when you pour beard on it, it just shut off. It didn't blow up. So we would wait till there was a, a big crowd waiting to get a drink, make a bunch of noise, pour a pitcher of water over over an amplifier, and it would shut off. I had three guys in the front doing that and five guys in the back with hair dryers drying them out so we could do it again and again. And in two and a half days, we sold $3.8 million worth of stuff. And I was a huge success. And all I did was get lucky. I didn't do anything right. I think you actually did a lot of writing. I think this story has so much relevance today because we don't have a blueprint necessarily how things are going to work with something that we're experiencing in the present time. And for a lot of younger generation, that is maybe the first crisis and biggest major obstacle they're running into, which is this current pandemic and global economic crisis we're seeing. 
and obviously economic deterioration uh, and unemployment and crisis that we see in the United States. Uh, but based what and around the world. Yes, but based what you're sharing, uh, how this is really relevant again is it's not just more than luck, but willingness to take a risk and try things out. So if you fail, what is the worst that's going to happen? But what if you do succeed? And very often we're preoccupied and too much focused on the failure versus of opportunity to make things better and, and take a bold, uh, bold action, right? And make it happen. But before even you did this deal and everything, and, 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 and obviously young, enthusiastic, uh, successful graduate with uh, education and putting yourself out there, you also had something that is very, very rare. You were one of the only few youngest people that were dealing with the stock exchange uh, at the time, wasn't you? Yeah, uh, my only job was nine months as a stockbroker once. At the time, I was by 13 years the youngest New York Stock Exchange licensed broker in the city of Phoenix. And I'm not saying I'm old or anything, right? <laughs> but, you know, this weekend, the Dow's sitting at about 23,000. It's been as high as almost 30,000. I was in the trading room the day that the Dow cracked 1,000 for the first time, which for 35 years, people had said theoretically could never be done. And I was there um, and I did, my goal was to be a stockbroker and I hated it. It was fun when, when you recommended somebody that, you know, they, they buy some securities of some sort and the price went up. But in those days, much more than today, people borrowed money to buy stock and they could borrow half the money. So if they had to put up $10,000 to buy a bunch of, of, of shares, they only had to put up $5,000 cash and they could borrow the rest. And then if the, if the price goes down, you had what was called a margin call. And the margin call was, Harry, guess what? Remember the stock you bought? I need $2,700 by tomorrow morning, or you get shut out and you lose all your money. And I absolutely hated that, walked away and said, I'm done being a stockbroker. Hmm. That is very, very good story. And do you mind repeating again? Uh, at that time, it was impossible to think about it, how low or when correction of the stock will happen. And then when we fast forward and look at correction of the stock right now, I mean, that is interesting parallel. And we're talking about how many decades ago, right? We're talking about maybe four or five decades ago. And, and Maybe five. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, and it's not because, again, we're referencing your age, but we're referencing uh, capacity and wisdom and exposure you had and seeing so many decades of major transformation that occurred, uh, not only economically, but um, politically, social, economically, as well between uh, entrepreneurship and large corporations. So with that wisdom, do you mind now fast forward in the present time and seeing what is happening here and, and what, are your, what are your predictions are? What, what are your take on the current situation is? From the youngest stock broker who was um, seeing something that they thought would be the worst uh, outcome or worst situation to the current one that we're seeing even worse, sadly, in my lifetime. Right now, I think is going to end up to be the worst time in my lifetime. Um, I've been lucky enough to live through a number of recessions. Only one of them killed me. I couldn't get over Jimmy Carter's recession in 1978 and 79 when we had a 21% prime rate. And I was building a business that was based on debt. And um, I crashed and burned in that one. In every other recession, I personally have made more money in those recessionary times than when times are good. I'm not real sure why, but that's just been my history. Um, do I think that this is a very scary time? Yes. Do I think I'm gonna make more money this time than I made last year? Yes. Um, but that's because I happen to be lucky enough to be in a place that I think um, the products that I sell today are not not re recession proof, but play well in a recession. And this is, I'm glad you're also touching on that point. 
obviously with years and wisdom and, and, and having these roller coaster rides that sometimes we just don't get assigned to, but we end up being on. And as a result, we have three things to do, react, ignore, or, or, or just, um, uh, again, try to be proactive and do something with them. It seems like you were able to, and those uh, changes go with that. And as a result, obviously look for the products and services that will uh, bring value and solution. And as you just mentioned, uh, help during the challenging times or times when things are not necessarily as smooth. So do you mind sharing a little bit how you select those products or services and, and what exactly do you do specifically in the current time so that others can really learn how important it is to know what do you offer? Is the market interested in that offer? How can you not only survive, but kind of how can you thrive? Breaks down to probably two words, work and simplify. Wow, that is fantastic advice. An, an enormous amount of time, a, a lot of which is, is to my wife's chagrin because she works with me, doing what I, ca I call, I think of as just research. You know, I read pretty voraciously. I not only read uh, books, but I'm, I, you know, I try to read newspapers and other things regardless of political spectrum. So, for example, every day I read the Denver Post, the Wall Street Journal, the L.A. Times, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. You can't get any more crazily undefined politically than any of those. That said, I and I don't read them. I read the headlines and occasionally read an article or two. Uh, takes too long to read them, and I don't have all that much time. Um, but I think it, it's vital to, to, to try to start to see things. Now, I didn't see Bill Gates' 2015 TED Talk, which talked about there's going to be a pandemic that's going to make the wars that we've had in this world look like it's easy. they were easy. Um, but it was there. And I have read and thought a, a long time about, okay, Rex, you don't have the, the, the gas in the tank that you used to have. What are you going to do to find something that's going to be good in good markets and great in bad markets? And that's pretty much how I made the choice of the products, the, the suite of products that I sell today. That is that is a great lesson. And one of the things, obviously, you you have a product, you're in the sales, you also have a marketing business, and you are providing creative solutions that are helping large businesses and small businesses actually to do things better, smarter, and then preserve their um, marketing sales and promotional dollars. And obviously when things happen, as you just shared in your previous example, when you have to let go of all these roles and employees, a lot of companies are exactly doing the same today. We're seeing so many positions shaved off and reality is like, quote unquote, what is essential? What roles is essential? Who is going to survive the talent cats and who is going to still have the job? And is those jobs and those roles sufficient enough to help those large companies uh, to survive? And are we going to see so many brands? And I know that we had a conversations in the past, uh, and I'm, again, so happy and lucky to have you as a great friend, mentor, and advisor, and, and somebody who uh, I actually get a chance to chat about a lot of different things and helps me to gain perspective because I did not live in an era you did. But now that we shared this time together, having wisdom and experience really shifts so much. And with that in mind, what, what I'm bringing this up is um, how do people um, obviously make a decision? It's, it's truly based on reading, research, and everything else. But what do you see that is currently going to work very well uh, based on what you uh, not only share now, but based on what you've seen as a trend, as a typical type of indicators from previous experiences, from previous recessions, and challenges you've been through? I think I'd probably go back to simplify. Did the world need e enormous um, amounts of airplanes to get around? Did the world need $1,000 a night hotel rooms? Did the world need $4,000 bottles of wine in, in restaurants where 
where entrees were $100 a piece? Probably not. So what have been the, the parts of the economy that are hurt, hurt worst? Enter, entertainment and spoiling yourself. What's doing well? Stuff that people really need. You know, back to my products, if you're stupid in bad times, you cut off marketing. And if you're smart, you, you lap the people who've cut off marketing by making your marketing more efficient. And I believe that's what we do. And I, I think, you know, yes, that's a self-serving example, but what the hell I can, because I'm on your podcast. But that is great, actually, that you pointed out that we're going to see less probably need and demand for luxury items, more necessities, and the people will be uh, obviously spending their money wisely, as well as the companies and directions where they're going to go. And your product offers to save them those marketing and sales dollars and help them to continuously cater to the, uh, for their future customers, as well to help serve current ones. Uh, is, am I correct? Is that the product and service yeah. we're talking about? Um, yes, it, we can help them save money, but even more important, we can make we can help them make their mar their current marketing dollars more efficient. So it'll help them make their dollars go farther smarter. And I love about that that not only your wisdom, education, your background, years of experience led you to this point, but also. It's a beautiful because what I'm seeing a lot of ethics uh, and integrity is missing and we're seeing some unprecedented behavior and from brands that uh, we can go on and on and lists uh, from CEOs to uh, board of directors and leadership teams or lack of as well horrible customer service um, where, for example, we're running into situations that we're waiting on customer service line for over four or five hours with no help. And we have to leverage social media to get somewhere. Uh, so with all of that in mind, I also feel like we're building intelligence and close and tight knit network with who we want to work and who we believe in and who we trust. And I think that is also beautiful to see uh, from veteran in industry like yourself and your wife to grow and continue to be that consistent um, anchor of what small business actually can still do and how can help to disrupt and support and make a difference for the larger organizations. So kudos for that. So with moving yeah, it's nothing special. Small business can always outspeed big business. Could you please the speak a little bit about that? Because a lot of guys think, again, when do I start? How do I start? How can I make a difference? And how can I make impact? Do you mind sharing a little bit about small business implications here? The decision tree in Yellow Schmella, which is my company, is two, Jill and me. The decision tree, I got turned down by IBM two weeks ago in a $5,000 a month for, for a six-month contract deal, which would have done them good because they couldn't make a $5,000 a month decision. Really? IBM can't spend $30,000 and have it help or hurt? Come on. Nice. A lot of times you totally write decision-making three or, or implications or what they use, look at it, see as a priority or uh, looking and um, going with the old partners or partners that are dysfunctional or results they think that are okay, that I'd rather go for okay versus exceptional or great. Or it's just sometimes it's we're not willing to make a change and we're not going to make a change till we get more pain. And as both of us know, obviously, from my background as a transformation and change agent, people only change two times voluntarily when practically they really see that is possible to be ahead of the curve. And because they desire it, they want it. And then they're a great place, which is very, very rare. And it's less than. 3%, actually, with the current statistics, less than 1%. And then the other group that changes when it's extremely too painful, excruciating, and often very, very too late, uh, and then try to salvage or save something. What, do, what, what is your reaction on that? 
the biggest problem that any of us have to overcome is the status quo. And if you can be, if you can overcome the status quo, you can light fires no matter what the market is. But you got to beat off the status quo, which is really, really hard. Very, very true. And one of the things that obviously we're seeing is lack of the leadership and lack of proper guidance. Uh, seeing people not being prepared for even remotely uh, small scale crisis, let alone something of magnitude like this. So everybody's doing, as they said, Isabel, we're doing the best we can. But the sad part is, as we unpeel the onion, so many organizations have extremely intelligent, smart talent. Unfortunately, they're overshadowed or not able to, as you said, $5,000 monthly decision. Uh, it's too complicated or, or it's too many layers or just simply not easy process. And as a result, they're pushing themselves further, further backlogged and further away from solution that they desperately need. Um, so with that in mind, I, I really think more than ever leadership and revisiting the leadership and decision making processes and understanding what the true problem is. Uh, I'm sure you ran into numerous situations when people will solve the wrong problem. And I really feel like that people prioritize wrong problems or identify wrong problems and result solving the wrong problems and ignoring the true ones. Are you familiar with something called the Stockdale paradise paradox? What kind of paradox? Do you mind repeat it again? Stockdale. I'm not sure that I am. Could you please share? General Stockdale was the highest ranking American imprisoned in um, Vietnam. And he taught his guys to one, understand, and I'm, I'm, I'm quoting very ge generally here, I don't remember the damn quote, sorry. Uh, but one, recognize how bad it is. And two, regardless of how bad it is, understand that in the end you will win we are in a classic stockdale paradise situation right now and if you give up you're not going to win and if you understand how bad it is and and but understand that ultimately it's going to be okay and go forward like that you're gonna be fine I think that is fantastic advice and, and a great aspect to move forward. Uh, before obviously get better, we might experience more turbulence and craziness, but also more than ever, I think it's important to align with the like-minded individuals and people that are willing and they are taking the risks and, and surround yourself uh, with the positive role models and uh, be able to know that as everything in life, this is temporary. and. I know that so many of us are seeking answers. I'm sure you've been asked this already. Rex, when do you think we're going to see in the United States light on the end of the tunnel? When do you think, um, how bad this is going to be? Because unemployment is rock, rocket sky, uh, skyrocketing and it's getting worse and worse. Uh, so with all of that gloom and news and, and negativity, do you mind sharing some great positive perspective that you see, how we should leverage our time, efforts, and, 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 and what do you see from positive side of the coin um, that is coming? Once again, simplify. Starting tomorrow, for example, um, Yellow Schmellow is going on a new marketing binge um, away from what we've been doing into something that's less expensive, uh, but can add tre tremendous value. And oh, by the way, build customer loyalty. So we'll come back later and sell the expensive stuff that we've been selling. You gotta, you gotta have the guts to pivot. And literally tomorrow, we are starting with a $500 product versus products that were thousands of dollars. That it's a very smart, smart way and smart approach. And when people start seeing results, we hope so. We hope we're not nuts. Uh, I'm sure it's easier to make that kind of decision versus commit yourself financially for something because people don't know what will work and when will work. And a lot of people really, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a tenth of the money per sale minimum that I've been making. 
that's not an easy decision to make. That's a pivot. And that's one that takes balls. Sorry. Yes, I, I understand. I'm just talking about from consumer side, for people, for client side, that a lot of times for them, because they're in such a turmoil, it's very, very difficult. And, and I'm glad you guys are doing that and are offering solution that is going to be easy to digest, easy to accept, easy to go with. And I'm really eager to hear how this is going to unfold. But pivoting is absolutely crucial. I can't agree more. And understanding the pain point even more important than easy to digest anybody has five five hundred dollars spending authority at, at a company and we're not and it's a one month contract if you want to do it again the next month it's another five hundred dollars if you want to go away you can come on how do you say no to that that's fantastic. So you're removing all the obstacles and all the all the all the rejection um stories and giving them a chance to really be in a driver's seat in decision-making and start thinking proactively, progressively. I think that's brilliant. Besides that is bold and well, gutsy and uh, definitely, I'm sure, a major adjustment for you guys and your company. So. Trying to break the status quo. And I'm seeing that more and more coming from people, again, that are not necessarily just looking what's in there for me, but what can I do to increase the value and help and preserve some of these great companies that we're seeing that, unfortunately, we may not see in the future. Um, if we just compare who used to be Fortune 500 top 10 companies in 2009 to 2019 we see completely different ranking in the landscapes from that scale i remember when i did that research there were only two companies that were from 2009 still on top to 10 in 2019 more than ever we're going to see tremendous shift that even the companies that reached that status up to 500 they will not be any more there because they're not pivoting. They're not adjusting. And, and I, I, I'm so glad you brought that up. But um, I can't stop chuckling. Even more important than that, I think. Yes. Is that everything that a company knew before about the 11th of March this year is no longer relevant. Everything. It's a whole new world. And who's going to have the moxie to go pull it off? I love that. Who's going to have a moxie to pull it off? I think so. I am seeing somebody already in front of me. So I'm really excited to see how your new pivoting and adjustment will play out. But again, I can't stop chuckling when you were mentioning yellow schmella. So do you mind sharing? Uh, it's ear catchy, eye catchy uh, logo, the name and, and sound. So do you mind telling me a little bit about that? What is Yellow Schmello and how this came about? In 2009, I was looking to start a new business because I was tired of traveling. And more than the people here wanna know, but you, you, you know well, I only have one eye and it's really bad and I couldn't fly anymore. But I was still showing up in L.A. or Boston or Miami or wherever I needed to show show up on interstate, whatever the name was. Starting 2009, I started to say, you know, actually started 2008. I started to say, I got to do something local. I got to get off the road. 2009, the specter of local search marketing started to to to, to raise its head, helping local businesses, schools, doctors, dentists, roofers, whatever get found online. And I thought, I know how to do that. Well, I didn't know how to do that, but I knew how to hire people that knew how to do that. And I thought about it for a few months and there, there's a guy in, in town named Rick Raddatz who did very well in the internet in the early days. And Rick's kid went to school close to me in those days. And every week or two, we'd have coffee after he dropped his son off at school and solve every problem in the world sitting in the coffee shop. And one day I walked in and I said, Rick, and oh, by the way, the obvious target at the time was the Yellow Pages because the Yellow Pages was still a big deal. Rick, I, I walked in and said, Rick, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this local search marketing thing that's gonna be called your next promotion. Quote, dude, that's the worst name I've ever heard. It's Yellow Schmello. Okay, done. 
Wow. So despite the feedback, you followed your gut and you persevered and Yellow Schmellow now is changing the portfolio and changing so many companies' lives. That is fantastic. Love it. Um, I, I there, just... There's somebody who lives with me that hates the brand, but it's not changing. <laughs> and it's really hard, as they say, when you create one brand and you start being known for it, the worst thing is to change it and to try to pivot. Uh, but at the same time, um, I, I just think it's it's just priceless. It's so unique. It's now, you know, the, the yellow pages. Yeah, the yellow pages isn't isn't a factor anymore, but that's okay. Yellow schmellow will live. And 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 actually has a very again catchy tone, so it's hard hard to not to remember. Um, but one thing you just mentioned also when you were sharing this, your personal journey, your your health issues that um, also forced you to pivot. Uh, mentioned uh, limitation to travel because you were executive who was on airplanes traveling the world for years and years and years and uh, great experiences as a result of that. But now, you know, bound for driving and no flying, not even nationally. Uh, and do you mind just sharing your aptitude? I mean, you have you don't have to go in details what exactly health-wise it's happening, but the fact that you have limitations uh, that... Um, really? <laughs> limitations to fly uh, that that prevented you, how you also leverage more than ever. And, and I love your attitude. I mean, uh, somebody who will easily get frustrated, obviously, but uh, you always found ways and creative, positive ways to deal with adversity. And um, from your early dreams to be professional golf player to your um again very robust portfolio and background to the current time for somebody who is seasoned who is a veteran in industry that is still learning that is still changing and adjusting and when i hear from younger generation that are saying we cannot do this uh what would be your message giving obstacles also in personal life you had to endure and still enduring every day uh, and being now off the risk for not only for COVID-19, but so many other things. How do you still smile? How do you still have this positive outgoing personality and attitude to move forward and look things through very positive lens? Yeah, there was about 43 questions there, so I'm not sure where to start. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just fully loaded. <laughs> I guess the first thing I'd say is, if you treat the obstacle as the way, as a way of life, no matter what gets thrown at you, you'll be fine. Um, it so happens that I've had more surgeries than probably anyone that you've ever talked to before. Only 83 of them. The, the first one when I was six weeks old, the last one 13 months ago, and I'm not done. Um, and it's cost me an enormous amount of money and an enormous amount of time. But so what? What's the, what, what else is gonna happen? Um, I have no time to sit around and do anything other than have some fun and see if I can do a little good. And if, I have, if I'm having fun and doing a little good, dead presidents usually come my way too. Well, okay. That is great attitude. That is absolutely great attitude. Uh, and question it is, how did you arrive to this? Uh, what was the pivotal moment in your life? Because I see so many people stressing out, not, which is understandable, but because it's everything is being disrupted and forced upon and of, of, of tremendous change. But I'm also seeing people that should know better, that are adults, that are mature and should behave in different lights. And unfortunately, they're not being the best role models. And I have to say, since I knew you from day one, you exuded uh, this great consistency in your presence and quality of human that you are. And despite what life threw at you, uh, I just wanna say, how do you um, persevere? How do you consistently stay grounded? That is, that is the biggest takeaway, honestly, that I think all of us can learn and hear you share. I'm guessing I'm, I'm guessing there you're looking for a story that you've heard before, right? 
stories are just the two or three key uh, elements that you really think uh, will help. I mean, it's truly just more uh, conversational and open-ending because I, I know that deep down when we distill all of that, where something that you created that got to the point when you said, why to stress about something I can't change, right? As a result, I am not sweating the small or big stuff. Uh, or this this is the, really the formula that I live by every day, and what that formula is. It came when I was fourteen. Remember, when I was that age, golf was my entire world, and I was pretty good. Um, some days the guys whose names you know beat me, and some days I beat them. And I was just a wild man on the golf course. If I hit a bad shot, I'd just go crazy. Yell, scream, cuss, throw clubs, throw clubs in lakes sometimes, do stupid stuff. And I was the only poor kid in my generation that got good at it. I was lucky enough to have some talent and I was probably unlucky enough to be just nuts enough to go for it. Um, but for example, there was none, never money around for golf lessons. I never had one until I was in college. I taught myself how to play golf, but I was this crazy kid when I hit it, when I hit it wrong. And I really, really, really wanted my first custom made driver, which is the number one wood, which is what you hit off the tee for those golfers not, or those people here that aren't golfers. And I saved money for a year and a half to buy my first custom made driver. The first day I had it out, I hit a really awful shot with it. And I did what I do. I get, went nuts. You probably can't see it, but there's a, a little scar right there, right off of my thumb. I see it. That's because I was wrapping the driver around a tree and the shaft came back and stabbed me. That is. And, you know, that was. 58 years ago and the scar, the scar is still there. And that was pretty much the last time that I got pissed off. Not totally, but let's put it this way. If I raise my voice three times in a year, it's a really bad year. Because all you're going back to the golf analogy, all you're doing when you get pissed off on the golf course is you're hurting your next shot and your next shot and your next shot. Whereas if you forget it and go do the best you can do to recover from what stupid you just did, it's going to be better than if you keep playing with bad mental attitude. And that's just an attitude that I accepted and that's permeated my life for those last 58 years. I love it. And, and, and I love the golf analogy used that through sports and how this is pivotal in our personal and professional life, because that also hurts that next relationship and next relationship or next professional encounter that we have. And then before we know, we're creating more obstacles and more damage, damage um, and creating more damaging situations instead of uh, solutions. I am the luckiest man that I know because I married the most wonderful woman in the world. Also, can you can you name another person that's been married almost three decades that's had two fights? I really can't. I mean, I, I, I don't know, I, but that is a brilliant statistic. And by the way, she's she's every bit as as, as even tempered, maybe even more than I am. So I just got lucky. That is fantastic. And that is a great example specific right now as we see more emotional turmoil and people lashing and hurting the most people that they loved and support them and, and, and that they need the most in their life. And I really wanted to, in closing, really emphasize how important it is to be fully present, take responsibility for our own behavior and not let those behaviors to create a damage and more pain and sorrow and sadness to people that we love and around us, because this is not time to be um, negative, toxic, and dysfunctional. It's a time to take care of yourself, but also seek help if you need it and, and be supportive and uh, supportive of others. With, in the club Absolutely. And, 
since I've known you, how many times have I suggested that you worry about the things that you can control and not worry about the rest? Many, many times. Many, many times. More, but let's put it this way, more, more, more than fingers and toes that you have. Mm, okay. And yeah, okay. <laughs> I can't count, but okay. <laughs> the point is, yes, it's very different perspective and obviously different personalities and you spot on uh, all of us, including myself, have a different approach to it and, and definitely room for improvement by all means. So uh, with that whole vulnerability, uh, at least some of us are trying to striving to be better. And when we're at least aware of it, uh, we have a chance. But when we're not or when we're in denial and not willing even to look at through that perspective, it's a lost cause, isn't it? So I really appreciate the support that the, the over years the great uh, anchor in my life that obviously it's been absolutely pivotal on so many levels. And I can't say- Really, I drag you down? <laughs> absolutely, and anchor me, ground me, and also help me to look at things from very uh, healthy and different perspective. And I honestly cannot advocate how important it is to have uh, those types of role models to your listeners in your life, which brings something uh, in, that is so dear to my heart also, the legacy, the leadership, obviously, you know, and everybody knows that I'm extremely passionate about that. But I also see a legacy as a top tier of uh, our achievements, our accomplishments based on our existence. A lot of times people confuse that based on how many millions and billions are being earned and where your name will show on major streets or buildings and plaque and, and, and accolades, but they don't recognize, yes, could be financial and it's nothing wrong, but if we're just starving, striving and starving our, to get that financial success, but overtaking how we got there and relationships and personality, that is completely missed opportunity to truly leave um, meaningful, impactful um, legacy that's gonna echo years and years after all of us are gone. So with that in mind, I know you have some really powerful legacy that you already established, obviously, for so many people's lives, including my own, but the things that you live by and also passing on for future generations. Do you mind just sharing and closing what that is to our listeners and, and how important it is to think early um, what that legacy will make a mark, not only for generations to come, but obviously something that continues to live beyond as a Rask's wise heart, uh, words of wisdom. I mean, the easy answers are simplify, do what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it, treat others like you'd like to be treated, things like that. I'll give you maybe a, a way different answer than you're looking for. For 30 years, I was a late stage corporate turnaround guy. And I only worked for the owners of companies. I never worked for v VC companies in their turnaround department. I never worked for banks. I never did anything but try to help entrepreneur owners save their net worth. Six times during the 30 years that I was, that I was playing corporate turnaround guy, my clients who paid me a lot of money to be their friends asked me to be best man in their wedding. And the first thing that I would always tell them is, dude, you need friends. The next thing I would say is thank you and I'm honored, but I think it's my legacy that those six guys who were paying me money to hang out and go to war with them every day asked me to be their best, best man at their wedding. Wow, that is very good, fresh and different perspective. Living by it, by it's it's obviously and 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 showing up and being consistently that human, that person. Um, but even in the time and era of competition and challenge, still be that great positive role model and great friend, even though you have to do challenging things and sometimes ugly things. But we can still do it in a humane way. We can still do it with the, with the salt of um, 
cautious and salt of uh, um, confidence, but also support and, and compassion and kindness. We don't have to overpower and over overuse our power in a moment when people are already down on their knees, right? Does no good. Does no good to abuse whatever power you may have accumulated. And you're right, uh, obviously, as as you as one of your favorite comments is, little honey goes a long way. And having kind and sweet conversation and 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 bringing the kindness in the forefront and not trying to understand where the other side is coming from. A lot of times, uh, anger, frustration, um, behaviors come from previous experiences, the fears, the abuse, and things that people didn't have a chance to really handle and work on or still working on it, or just simply don't know, and they're just over their head. And a lot of times they're not sure, but sometimes even those very dramatic and changing uh, situations are maybe the best thing that could possibly happen to them to free them and give them second chance in life. So with that note, uh, since like you gave so many people second chances in their life by helping them out and leading in directions so that they can, uh, as we are now going through second chance in this chapter of major transformation, not only to survive, but also to thrive. Just hang in there, this too will pass. Thank you, Rex. It was an absolute pleasure to have you here today and sharing all these great stories as well. Words of the wisdom from someone who obviously it's been major corporate turnaround guy, Dalbada Bad, ugly and ugliest, and all the way to again, very successful entrepreneur who were able to overcome many personal and professional challenges. It was a pleasure to have you. It was great to be here. Thanks.